the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great pleasure to welcome the one and only Fred Kohler. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for uh, you know asking me to do it. My first question... For those that don't know, who is Fred Kohler? Fred Kohler is a professional songwriter. Also, he's an author and a bookseller. I have been doing most of those things since the early 70s, and I've had my songs recorded by hundreds of artists in many different genres of music. Can you remember early music that was playing around the house when you were growing up? I can. My grandmother used to go to estate sales and auctions and things, and she came home with a box of 78s. And I remember being very young and listening to Burt Williams singing songs like Nobody's and Moonshine in the Moonlight, which I guess were kind of novelty songs at the time. And I remember one of the first records I purchased was some of those early Johnny Horton songs like Think the Bismarck and North to Alaska, and this would have been right after Johnny Horton passed away. And where were you born? I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and I was raised in South Chicago, and it was a, a great place to be because we had country music on a number of stations. We had WLS playing local bands and R&B and blues, it, you know. When you look at the charts from back then, which were called the Silver Dollar Survey, it'll be everyone from, say, Fern Husky and Dave Dudley to an instrumental group to a local band. I mean, it was a real variety of music. As far as yourself as a songwriter, today, who would you say your greatest influences are? I'd have to put Shel Silverstein very high on the list because he taught me so much. But I've also... Equally influenced by Cole Porter, Johnny Mercer, uh, on that side for standards and things. Harold Allen, I, I love the work of all those people. Jerry Lieber, who just passed away, was a fabulous songwriter. Doc Pomas. I spent a lot of time uh, in my early years here working with Charlie Williams, who'd been a DJ out of California, but who had written songs for all kinds of people. And Cliffy Stone, people like Bobby Bear. I just love good story songs and songs that have a message and almost define an artist. That kind of songwriting rather than just uh, ditties that, you know, you can't really place of any one person. Can you remember the first song you ever wrote? Sort of. I had a paper route when I was a kid. I remember making up songs, riding around on my bicycle, delivering papers, and but never really writing those down. And I went to the art school in Chicago and worked in a record store and was exposed to all kinds of music and was just kind of learning to play the guitar. And I wound up down in Champaign, Illinois. There was a coffee house there that we had bring in performers ranging from Stevie Goodman, Bob Gibson, Weather Report, David Bromberg, Gladden Wainwright, people like that. And there was a core of sort of 
folk singer-songwriters who were starting to write their own songs. And I remember a couple of the songs that I wrote there. When I first came to Nashville, I hadn't written a half dozen songs. Tell us about your move out to California. How did that come to be? Well, I was signed to ATV Music. Charlie, was from, Charlie Williams was the office manager here. And I wanted to go out to L.A. to do some writing there with some of the staff writers and kind of expand my horizons. And a friend of mine had given me a couple of names of people he knew in Northern California. I wound up uh, staying with Shel Silverstein on his houseboat and writing a lot of songs. And then I went down to Santa Cruz, California, where I encountered Lacey J. Dalton, whose name was Jill Croston at the time, and a very active scene there centered around a club called the Club Zianti, where they would have, say, Clifton Chenier come play for a week, or Mose Allison, or Bob Brosman. There'd be a, a jug band. There's also a lot of singer-songwriters in that scene. And I just realized after a couple of years that it was very isolated from even L.A. or the Nashville music scene. And even though the climate was perfect, I wasn't getting my songs to the audience that I was trying to reach. I was hoping you could tell us about meeting Shel Silverstein in 1974. What was your initial impression of him, and how did you meet him? Okay, I went to a small high school in southern Illinois, and the first day I got there, one of the other students who was staying across the hall had a reel-to-reel tape recording of Harry Jazz, Shell's first record with Barry B. and My Shades on it. And I remember listening to it thinking, you know, this, this is one of the strangest records I've ever heard. And it stuck with me. His name kind of stuck with me. And then about 74 or so, I was in Champaign at that coffee house I mentioned earlier and sitting on the front porch of older Victorian home that was kind of painted up like a commune with some people I knew at the time. And Shell comes walking up and asked if he can borrow my guitar and immediately sang one of his songs. And I knew who he was. And we talked briefly. And then a couple of years later, after I'd hitchhiked down to Nashville, I was working for a company that Bobby Bear was also at, and Shell Silverstein walked in, and we started talking about Chicago, and the very first song he and I wrote is that song, Jennifer Johnson and Me, which talks about Homewood, which is my hometown, but it's also the town where the girl and Sylvia's mother lived, and that's a, may think it's just a made-up song, but that song is a very true story about a woman who Shell was deeply in love with, who, uh, when he got back from Africa... He called and the mother said, stop calling, she's getting married today. And, you know, it all went on from there. And uh, we would just, you know, he, he was such a great mentor and always encouraging. What did you find his personality to be like? I found him to be shy among some people. He had a great sense of humor. He would do anything for his friends. He didn't do any drugs or alcohol. He wasn't that kind of a guy, even though he wrote a lot of songs about it. He turned me on to, like I said, Johnny Mercer and a lot of those older writers. He just loved funny inner rhymes. He was just a word machine. I mean, I've never seen a person uh, just writing for the sheer love of it, enjoying music for the sheer love of it. And, you know, he'd pay as much attention to somebody singing songs on a street corner in San Francisco as he would go in to hear Ernest Hub record one of his songs. And he could go from the Playboy Mansion to... Nashville, 
to wherever uh, without changing his shirt. I mean, he was the same guy, just as welcome in any scenario. Amazing. Now, you just mentioned a second ago Ernest Tubb, and you and Shel Silverstein had a mutual love for Ernest Tubb. Well, we just loved his voice and his honesty. One of the first trips we ever took is Shell had stopped driving after that accident in Florida. We drove out to the old Bradley's barn that burned down to see Ernest record, and Ernest was just very cordial and great. And that was the neat thing about Nashville back in those days is that the industry was still being run by disc jockeys and road musicians and people who grew up loving the music and they were very welcoming. It wasn't like, oh, you're from Chicago or you're from here or there. If they liked your songs, you were in the door and there's no question about it. It was a very close group of people. Our special guest is Fred Kohler. What is it you like about old bookstores? I like the fact that it's a continuing education. And there's serendipity there that you're never going to get on the Internet. And Shell and I would haunt old bookstores. He didn't drive, like I said, so I would be carrying boxes of books to him in Sausalito or shipping them off to his place on the vineyard. And here and there, he really collected a lot of early illustrated children's books and odd poets. And there's always that finding something you don't expect there. And also, if you're in a used bookstore with a friend, there's all that, have you read this, passing back and forth books? And to me, it's a really great way to d- d- discover parts of the world that you'd never know about. And what is it you like about out-of-the-way cafes? Well, I just like the whole atmosphere. I like the fact there's a part of America that hasn't changed. You know, you listen to songs like Rosalie's Goodies Cafe, Shell song, or I Have a Waitress, and she came from Fort Worth and things like that. One of my best friends here is, a realist named John Bader, who's the father of the whole American roadside movement. And it's people, I like locals where you go, you know, you have your church, you have a cafe where they know you by name, and you have your home. You have different places where different parts of your personality get to shine. What is your all-time favorite book? My all-time favorite book, The Art Spirit by Robert Henri, which uh, he was one of the fathers of the Ashcan movement. And it's supposed to be a lecture for artists, but it's more philosophy and sharing the joy of looking at the world and seeing it and trying to capture it on paper. I've read it over and over. There's another book called The Triggering Town by Richard Hugo, a great poet, which is kind of the same theme. And those are two books I go back to time and time again. And what about your all-time favorite record album? Let's see. I have so many. I really love Sam Cooke, Nightbeat. I think that's one of the greatest records ever made. I like, oh God, you know, the first Leonard Cohen album just blew me away for the the poetry and the production and all that. I like a lot of the uh, early country records by people who say more like Stoney Edwards and people like that. Just pure, great country singers. I'd rather hear someone with that kind of magic in their voice where you can just tell that they've lived it and they love what they're singing about. You're a man of fine taste, if I may say. Thank you. I wanted to ask about a few of the songs that you wrote that I especially like. Sure. There's a song you wrote, Circumstantial Evidence, that was done by the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, yes, and the demo was sung by Bruce Hey Baby Chanel, who just sang a fabulous version. 
Jerry Lee, for some reason, maybe too much coffee that morning or some other substance, but the original version was a little bit slower tempo, and I wish he'd slowed it down a bit, but I was so honored just to have Jerry Lee Lewis sing one of my songs. And it was, you know, I got to meet him briefly in Memphis right around that time, and he was everything you expected Jerry Lee Lewis to be. <laughs> and then another one, Juanita. Now, that's a song Shell and I wrote, and it started out pretty normal, and then next thing we knew, uh, a lot of twists and turns. David Co uh, covered it, but the first person to record it, and, and it's just been released in the past couple of years now, was Burl Ives. And Holland Howard heard me playing at a place called Bogey's Little Club in Nashville, and he just loved that song. He says, my friend Burl Ives is doing a record. You need to get him that song. And I finally got to hear Burl's version it's even better than David's. I mean, it's just great to hear that voice singing that twisted, weird lyric, and he just sells the song like nobody. Could you pick a favorite song that you have written? I really like this guitar is for sale that I wrote with Shell when I was living in California. I think it really captures what a lot of songwriters go through and definitely what I was going through at that time. Of course, I love Angel Eyes just because it was a thrill to be able to prove a lot of people wrong. We pitched that song to, well, basic criteria is, do you own a guitar or know someone who owns a guitar? And everyone would just go, oh, this is a ballad. This is this. John Hyatt's label didn't like it. Somebody else passed on it. Huey Lewis was thinking of doing it. And then we get a call one day saying that a blind Canadian blues singer had recorded our song. So we assumed, oh, it's got to be hundreds of dollars a year, but, you know, we'll see what happens. And the next thing you know, we have a top five pop hit. And now it's been a pop hit in Australia for a girl named Paulini, and there still hasn't been a country version of it. I loved the song when I played the song for other writers and friends of mine. They loved the song. It was the publishing industry and a lot of producers going, no, that's not what we're looking for. Tell us about your song, She Came from Fort Worth. Pat Elger and I had a real nice run for quite a while. Uh, one of the first songs that we wrote was Lone Star State of Mind that Nancy Griffith did, and then Don Williams also covered that. He. Uh, and I wrote Going Gone, and Nancy covered that because everyone on Music Row said it was a folk song and couldn't get recorded. Kathy heard the record version by Nancy and took it to number one. During that same period, Pat and I had written She Came from Fort Worth, which was unfortunately one of the last songs we wrote because he went off to write songs with some guy named Garth something. I forget his last name. To you, what makes a good song a good song? A good song to me, I've spent some time in art school and I'm sort of a weekend painter to me a good song supports the title tells the story moves the listener through the story and has enough surprises that after you've heard it on the radio for the 15th time you still pick up something new you know it's like some of your favorite films where every time you watch it there's another nuance that comes forward. And, and the song should support the title. I can't tell you how many times I go to a in the round or some kind of a songwriting camp or teaching at Kerrville or wherever, and the next morning I may have heard 100 songs, but I can only remember one or two titles because the, 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 the pictures and the stories just didn't hook up. What was it like when the first time you heard your song on the radio? It was fabulous because, like I said, I hitchhiked here of zero money, Basically, crashed with people and wandered the streets and eventually got a deal. I want to say that it was probably This Dream's on Me that, that Gene Watson covered. 
it was like an amazing thing. You know, people talk about pulling the car over to the side of the road. I, I believe I heard it early in the morning when I was first getting up. And then later in the day and then that weekend, he was on the Opry. It's happened a couple of times with my songs where they reach that maximum exposure point where every time you turn around, you're hearing them. And there's no better feeling. I just have been really blessed by having fabulous singers perform my songs. You mentioned a second ago about the songwriter in the round. You've had the chance to perform alongside a lot of people and write songs with a lot of people. Who would you say your best friends are in music? Well, that varies. Uh, Janice Dean's a very dear friend. I still write with a man named Tom Bishop, who's a fabulous songwriter who heads up the writing department at Naropa. And he wrote a song called Mr. Arthur's Place that a lot of artists have covered over the years. Marshall Chapman and I are still great friends. We've written a handful of songs over the years, but they've all seen the light of day. And there have been so many collaborators that it's, I'm still, well, for the past month or two, I've been working on a bunch of songs with Leo Lyons from the rock band 10 years after. He and I have written about probably 20 songs together, which have been recorded on various projects that he's doing. And that's a whole different style of music, but lyrically, I still enjoy it greatly. You mentioned some songwriters there that are just phenomenal songwriters. Marshall Chapman, Janice Ian. Of the people who are still writing songs today, you mentioned a lot of the songwriters from yesteryear that were the greats, but of the ones that are writing today, who's caught your eye or well, ear? my ear, I keep listening and, and, and hoping. I really, you know, Kenny Chesney has had that tequila thing he's got up. That to me is a nice, pure, simple song. I was really happy to hear that because all these songs about sweet tea and, you know, the good old summertime and shake it for me, country girl, and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry. That's just, those are not songs that are going to be covered 20 years from now. It's just the phase that we're going through is very confusing because I don't think it's steering people back towards more traditional country music. And, you know, I'm sure there's really hardcore traditional country lovers who'd say that the kind of stuff Kathy Mattea was doing was way too folky. But when I was trying to write for Gene Watson or even with Keith Whitley, we were trying to write straight-ahead country story songs and not write down to an audience. Now they just seem to be buzzwords and not the best of time, I don't think, to be someone stuck in a car listening to the radio. (laughs) One of the songs that you wrote, it's been done by a lot of people. Let's Talk Dirty in Hawaiian. Right. How did that one come to yep. Well, I had that title, and I've admired John Prine since his first record came out. He was ahead of me, sort of, in Chicago. I was still in Champaign when he and Stevie were really, a Goodman were really tearing up you know, the Earl of Old Town and, and making a name for themselves there. But I got to know him. We were both working with an administration company called Bug Music, and we kept saying, let's get together and write, let's do this and that, and... I've been working a lot with Robert Earl Keane at the time, and John and I just got together one afternoon, and I kind of had the part of the first verse, and John had a book called Instant Hawaiian, and we went down to a restaurant and sat outside and kind of wrote the song, and then it it took us a while to learn how to play it because the time signature is so weird, and John had just put out German Afternoons, and all of a sudden he had the song he liked a lot better, and he put it out as a single, and it's one of those songs that always makes me smile, and I can go on YouTube and find some of the strangest versions of that song ever out there. And, you know, any song that makes you smile out is a good thing. Absolutely. 
What inspires you to write a song? Sometimes I'm inspired by the title. and Sometimes it's just from listening to the music over and over until the words sort of slowly start to come to me. I've worked with some people that way because I'm more of a lyricist. But I'm one of those guitar players, much like John Prine, where if I learn a new progression or a couple of new chords, usually there's a song hiding in there somewhere. And I've been, you know, so lucky to get the work of people like Brian and Hyatt, Sonny Throckmorton, Nancy, people who bring a lot to the table and don't just sit there like a stump. I mean, uh, I went through a period here when I had publishers trying to put me with new artists who didn't believe in their own work. And I felt we wrote some very good songs, but they just weren't that self-assured to uh, believe in it. I've been surprised at the stuff that they chose over those songs, because when I go back to them now in retrospect, they're still pretty tight little songs. Is there anything on the horizons with Fred Kohler? Well, I've been playing a few concerts. I was out in California a while back and had a great time. I'm still writing songs on a regular basis. I'm just enjoying the book business because that really is a continuing education. There's great books coming in every day. I know that it looks very gloomy with Borders and Barnes and & Nobles and all the bookstores closing, but there's still a lot of readers out there. A lot of people are transferring their reading habits to Kindles, and they're bringing me books, and I'd rather have a, a real book in my hands any day. Now, if I was a traveling salesman or touring constantly, I'm sure I'd have hundreds of books on my iPad or my Kindle, but that's just not the lifestyle I'm, I'm you know, living right now. What is the best thing about being Fred Kohler? It doesn't feel like work when I get up in the morning. And I can go online and find some new version of one of my songs by someone who I've never met and start communicating with them. And it's always fresh and new when that happens. I'm proud to have created a catalog that is hopefully still viable. Well, I have one final question before we part. Sure. For anyone who's listening to this broadcast, wherever they are in the country or outside of the country, for that matter, what would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? When you hear a song that you love, learn who wrote it. And it's not just a Garth Brooks song. It's a probably a Pat Elger and Garth Brooks or Pierce Pettis or whoever. Learn who these songwriters are and look for their work because you'll be surprised at the diversity of songs. And most songwriters have some sort of a website now, and it's easy to learn more about their work. You don't have to spend half your life in used record stores and bookstores hoping to stumble upon something. And just realize that it's the background to your life. Life is but a song. Well put. For all the listeners out there, I'd like it if they would check out the website. For more information, if they'd like to find out more about Fred Kohler, it's fredkohler.com. That's F-R-E-D-K-O-L-L-E-R.com. And Mr. Kohler, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you so much. If you ever come through Nashville, look me up. I definitely love old bookstores, so Uh, (laughs) I could spend a couple hours there. (laughs) We can easily distract you, I'm sure. All right. Well, you have a good one. Thank you very Uh, much. Thank you, sir. Ba ba da beep, ba boop, dot boop, da beep.
Pera Lipa Nuck at the bees. I walk on teach a girl again. No, which I got one is in and got a kiss. I got all is it? Oh, I'm swagging. I believe it's a good way. But don't take a walk again. Goodbye.